Hello, and welcome to another episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm guest host Emily Wilkins, a Congress and campaigns reporter with Bloomberg Government, and I'm joined, as always, with senior campaigns reporter Greg Giroux. It is finally fall now. Some people see that as the start of Halloween season, aka spooky season, but Greg has done something truly terrifying. He has watched every, or almost every, congressional political ad since Labor Day. That's almost 500 political ads. And we're going to get into a little bit about what Greg has learned putting himself through that ordeal, as well as a little bit more about how lawmakers who are currently in Congress are using the last few weeks to really get prepared to go out on the campaign trail. There with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Before we jump into that, as always, we got to do Jero's Gem. My political number of note for every episode of Down Ballot Counts this week is 54.7%. That's the percentage of all broadcast campaign TV advertisements in U.S. Senate races between September the 5th and September the 18th that were pure attack ads, according to a report last week from the Wesleyan Media Project. Just 25.8% of Senate ads were wholly positive, and the other 19.5% were contrast ads that included a mix of positive and negative messages. That 54.7% share of Senate ads that were solely negative is much higher than the share of negative ads that ran during a comparable two-week period in the 2018 midterm election, when 41.7% of Senate ads were straight attack ads. The Wesleyan Media Project's report also saw a similar pattern in TV advertising in U.S. House races. 48% of TV ads in the first two weeks after Labor Day this year were attack ads, well up from 31% in 2018. Another finding is that Republican advertising is much more likely to be solely negative than Democratic advertising. Democrats are the governing political party and Republicans are seeking to make the November 8 midterm election a referendum on the Biden presidency and Democratic control of the House and Senate. Erica Franklin Fowler, co-director of the Wesleyan Media Project, said that the more negative tone owes to factors including the heavy involvement of outside groups and to the high stakes of an election after which either party could control the House or Senate. Republicans need a net gain of just five seats to win control of the House and a gain of just one seat to flip the 50-50 Senate. Negative ads are often criticized, but they're still around because they work. And that's your Jero's Gem. But Emily, I look forward to talking with you coming up more about what people are saying in these ads. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Yeah, Greg, thank you so much. And I mean, I just find the political ads, they're so interesting because they really tell you a lot about what issues campaigns think are resounding with the American public. They tell you about where, as far as the ads are going, you know, where various groups think they have a chance of winning. We saw some really interesting news last week uh, when some main Republican groups uh, pulled their ads out of Ohio's 9th district uh, with Congressman Marcy Kaptur is trying to defend her seat. Um, But Greg, I I want to really just get into a little bit more about what you're seeing with these ads. And I just want to start with sort of the the 30,000 foot view. I mean, certainly this is not your first time covering campaigns and looking at campaign ads. What are you seeing this year? What really pops out at you? 
I guess I'd start first with Republican ads, Republican ads by candidates and their affiliated uh, or associated groups like uh, super PACs. Um, seeing an awful lot of Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi in ads. Uh, Nancy Pelosi in Republican ads is nothing new. Um, she's always been a foil to Republicans for many years. Um, but Joe Biden, I'm seeing an awful lot of Republican ads, even in districts that President Biden won by mid to high single digits in the 2020 election, which really underscores that you know Biden's uh, popularity is still not uh, still mediocre. His approval rating, while it's not as low maybe as it was a couple of months ago, it's still hovering around 40 percent, maybe in the low 40s, which is still a danger zone for Democrats. And um, you know Republicans, even in districts that Biden won, have no um, no qualms about uh, linking Democratic incumbents and candidates uh, to Joe Biden. So I see a lot of that. So you mentioned Biden and Pelosi. How about like AOC, Bernie Sanders? Like how much are they also becoming foils? Not seeing much of Bernie Sanders in ads. Um, a little bit about with AOC, you know, um, you know, Republicans do like to link uh, Democrats to socialism and, you know, far left policies. Although I'm not hearing a lot of the tags of like socialist Democrats, as I might have heard uh, two years ago. Um, you know, these are just 30 second ads. I suppose there's only not so much you can say in that spot, but um, it's a lot of Biden, Pelosi. And then on issues, it's mostly inflation, taxes and spending. That's interesting and probably not surprising that inflation really is becoming the number one issue there. So that's Republican. How about Democrat ads? Uh, Democratic ads, they're running pretty hard on protecting abortion rights. Over and over again, I'm seeing Democratic ads that are trying to, you know, kind of capitalize on uh, some of the political wins they've had since the Supreme Court in late June overturned the 1973 Roe versus Wade uh, decision. Democrats in elections since then have either, you know, overperformed in elections they should have lost handily, or they won some uh, key elections, including a special election in the Hudson Valley and Catskills area of New York that Pat Ryan won. They flipped a, uh, a district in the, the statewide district in Alaska. Uh, Mary Paltola was the uh, Democratic winner there. Yeah, I think they, they feel like that issue could really um, uh, help boost Democratic enthusiasm, at least close the gap in voter enthusiasm um, that, that seemed to persist in the Republicans' advantage uh, for, for months prior to uh, that Supreme Court decision. We're seeing some abortion. We're also, I'm also seeing a lot of uh, Democratic candidates uh, touting their support for and uh, from local law enforcement officials. You'll see a lot of ads of Democrats with local sheriffs, county sheriffs, uh, some of them self-identifying as, as Republicans, basically saying uh, to those who say these, uh, this Democratic incumbent uh, wants to defund the police, um, that's wrong, this Democratic incumbent has our backs. And so um, I think it's um, probably a response to persistent criticism in the 2020 election that probably hurt Democrats, that Democrats wanted to, quote, defund the police. Um, I think Democrats are making a lot of uh, you know, pre-budding and even rebutting attacks uh, so they don't get hurt by that this time. Oh, yeah. I know that there were a lot of more moderate Democrats who were very concerned about defund the police and what it had sort of done to voters and voter turnout at the end of, of 2020. Clearly, this time, they are trying to come out strong on the offense or the defense. I'm not really a, a sports ball person, so I get them confused sometimes. But they're, they're really trying to make sure that folks know that they do indeed support uh, policing. Uh, how about Democrats passed all these bills, as you mentioned. How much are those showing up in the ads? Are they talking about the infrastructure package? Are they talking about the so-called Inflation Reduction Act with the taxes, the health care, uh, all of those components in it? 
No, not so much. I think it's hard to get um, kind of to tout legislative accomplishments in a 30 second ad. And I think some of the things they passed won't see immediate benefits. There's sort of a, a, a saying that, uh, you know, what not, don't tell me what you've done for me, tell me what you've done for me lately. Uh, and, um, you know, I think with the infrastructure package, for example, you know, I think that the the political benefits of that um, may not be felt for some time because we're talking about multi-year projects. I mean, if you could, you know, if you could get swing voters to reduce their time and traffic from 30 minutes to 10 minutes, it might be a <laughs> political benefit. That's clearly not happening. Um, so, you know, I think it's hard to run on something like that. Um, I, I am seeing, um, it's not the Inflation Reduction Act per se, Talking about um, one of the provisions in that law was to impose a corporate minimum tax, take on corporations, take on businesses, big businesses they say are gouging uh, customers. And they've also promoted the um, uh, Medicare prescription drug uh, pricing provision that, that was in the Inflation Reduction Act, but won't take effect until January. So you know, I don't think voters will feel um, immediate relief. Um, I don't think Democrats are touting that. But, you know, when you're um, in their position, you have to at least tell voters, try and tell voters that you're you're fighting for them and you're trying to, you're doing things that will try and reduce inflation. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, when these bills are passed or in the run-up to them, you'll hear a lot of lawmakers talk about, oh, this will help us with the election, this will help us with the election. But in the end, it's only really playing a small role in the ads. And even though Democrats have already done a lot, both parties are really trying to tout their legislative cred right now. Democrats are still pushing to get a ton of bills through uh, before the election uh, in the limited amount of time they have left. And Republicans in the House just rolled out their big plan last week. Yeah, Emily, I would like to you know, talk about how the policy affects the politics. Um, Emily, you spend a lot of time on in Capitol Hill corridors and writing about the intersection of policy and politics. And as we speak, Monday, September the 26th, 43 days before the election, uh, what does the Democratic-controlled Congress want to do or feel like they need to get done before they break for full-time campaigning? So, of course, the big thing is they need to fund the government through December. Uh, We're hearing a lot of December 16th. That is a little too close to my birthday for comfort, but, you know, they better than a shutdown. That's kind of the attitude most folks have on Capitol Hill. At this point, the worst thing for Democrats would be a shutdown. Even Republicans don't really want it at this point because they want to get home and hit the campaign trail, too. But, of course, if you're the party in power and the government shuts down on your watch, That's not good for you. But Democrats have actually been pretty busy in moving a number of pieces of legislation through. Uh, We saw the uh, election-related bill, the Electoral Counts Act. Remember, that's that process that uh, the insurrectionist interrupted on January 6th at the Capitol, trying to really firm that one up. We've got a, a Senate bill and a House bill. They're working on merging those together. We've seen action on that recently. And, hey, mentioning uh, the importance for Democrats trying to show their support for police. Just last week, uh, Democrats passed uh, legislation that would help give funding to smaller police departments, ones with 125 officers or less, basically would help them with training, would help them with recruitment. Uh, And this is something that a lot of frontline members uh, can take back to their districts and say, hey, I was able to help support the police in in these manners. Um, And it was a very interesting vote because you did see a number of progressive Democrats, particularly the the so-called squad, uh, go ahead and vote against that that legislation. 
Um, so those are sort of a couple of the big things. They are also potentially looking this week at passing legislation to ban lawmakers from trading stocks. I know at least uh, one congresswoman, Abigail Spanberger, who's been pushing for this. She says that it's something she actually does hear about from voters at home. Constituents will come up to her and say, hey, it's really not fair that lawmakers who have access to all this it, it, you know, kind of inside information are also able to trade stocks. And so they're trying to put a ban to that. Uh, but Really, I think the the name of the game is get the government funded uh, and and try and get everyone back out on the campaign trail as quickly as possible. It does remind me, I have seen a number of Democratic uh, candidate ads that have mentioned the congressional stock trading bill, not just from Spanberger, but from you know Chris Pappas of New Hampshire and uh, non uh, non incumbent Democratic candidates as well. Uh, public safety, um, I know Angie Craig of Minnesota's second district. She's been running pretty hard on that. I just saw a. Um, a candidate forum where she spoke about that and that's been i think one of the issues she's been running on that's a that's going to be a pretty close race there in the southern twin cities suburbs when you talk with uh, democratic members of congress who are in those uh, tough races those so-called frontline democrats we uh, like to talk about uh, emily what's their mood i mean do they think they've amassed enough of a, a legislative record they can they can bring to voters I mean, certainly it's looking way better for them than it even did just a couple months ago when it seemed like that big uh, legislative package was dead and that they wouldn't have time to get anything done. Heck, even we started the month of September really questioning what, if anything, the House would be able to get passed, and, and they have knocked out some of their priorities. But I think, Greg, as you mentioned, it, it really is a combination of not just t- pointing to legislation that you've passed and things that you've done, but it is also keen into some of those other issues like abortion and really trying to motivate voters to turn out. It's always a challenge for these lawmakers uh, to find a way to really translate what they've done in Congress to their voters just because things don't happen overnight. It take, it's going to take a lot of time for these things to be felt. And even when they are felt, folks don't necessarily think, oh, my member of Congress did that for me. Um, so I think there is among Democrats, there there's a little bit of hope, but I think most of them are, are very much expected expecting a, a tough race. I mean, certainly all of the election handicappers that you and I follow are projecting that Republicans are going to win. And I think at this point, the question is, do we see a really big red wave or do we see something much smaller? Mm-hmm. And Emily, one story you covered uh, last week was the rollout of a uh, policy and issues agenda from House Republican leaders that they are calling the commitment to America and say they will pursue if uh, Republicans win control of the House. Uh, Emily, what is in the commitment to America and will it have any bearing on the upcoming elections? Yeah, so there, in 1994, they had the contract to America, and this is the updated version. So what we saw, uh, actually we saw Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy go to Pittsburgh. He had a number of other Republicans with him across the spectrum. Marjorie Taylor Greene was there, but so were some more moderate members. Um, and basically what they kind of rolled out is a bit of a messaging document. It has these four pillars on the economy, safety, a future built on freedom, and an accountability government. And that kind of provides the top level talking points for a lot of Republicans and Republican candidates. And Newt Gingrich, of course, the author of Contract to America, was actually in the Capitol on Thursday. I got to catch up with him for just a minute. And I asked him, you know, who needs to hear these talking points? Who needs to hear what Republicans will do if they're in power? And he immediately just said independence, that this is going to be really important for independent voters uh, to let them know what Republicans will be doing. And it's also worth mentioning that even though the 
public facing section of this really is more about talking points. It doesn't get very far into the weeds. Lawmakers tell me that it's not because they don't have more detailed plans. I was talking uh, with Patrick McHenry, top Republican on House Financial Services. He almost described it as like a reverse Russian doll. He's like, you know, there are only two points on jobs and the economy in our overall plan. But those two bullet points, we've got four documents really spelling those out. And beyond that, we've got a 30 page memo that expands on the four documents. And then we've got hundreds of bills that are ready to go. So Republicans have been working on this for a while, but I think for the next couple months, it's going to be more of a messaging document than a governing document. Uh, and hopefully for Republicans, they, they want it to really be able to resound with maybe some more independent voters who are saying, well, look at everything Democrats did. What exactly can I expect from a Republican-led House? And that fight for independent voters is something we'll be closely watching the last 40 three days of the election. You know, sometimes these midterm elections are described as base elections that are just between, you know, hardcore Democratic voters, hardcore Republican voters. But independent voters, even though they're probably not as large of a percentage of the electorate as is commonly assumed, they are still an influential uh, voting bloc. And uh, we'll be watching uh, what independent, pure independent voters do uh, up and up to the November 8th election. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, Emily. No, thank you, Greg. This was a lot of fun. Uh, and we hope to join you all again when spooky season has officially started after October 1st. Uh, but until then, uh, you can continue to read uh, all of mine and Greg's reporting as well as the reporting from our fabulous colleagues at about.bgov.com. And also, if you uh, are listening to this before Wednesday, you should absolutely make sure to tune in to the House webinar that uh, Greg, uh, myself, and our colleague Zach Cohen are going to be presenting. Uh, We're going to give you an outline of the uh, different House races as well as take your questions. We hope to see you there. That's it for this episode of Down Ballot Counts. It was hosted by myself, Emily Wilkins, and Greg Giroux. Our producer is David Schultz, and our executive producer is Josh Block. We'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, sought the Democratic nomination for president and went on to endorse Joe Biden. Be sure to tune in for our next episode and hope to see you next time. Have you ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? Have you ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe over at On the Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On the Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now. And we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. You can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.